This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. COVID-19 outbreaks in Ontario's long-term care homes continue to settle down. Out of 626 nursing homes, there are still about three dozen separate outbreaks, but that's down dramatically from the height of the pandemic when the virus devastated long-term care across Ontario. As of this past Wednesday, indoor visits were allowed in nursing homes, which means family members who were acting as caregivers before the pandemic may now go inside to tend to the needs of their loved one. Filling in for Libby's Nimer this past Monday, Jane Brown was joined by our Zoomer squad to discuss Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Vice President here at Zoomer Media. We've heard for weeks now how important it is because um, the restrictions on visiting uh, inside have impacted very negatively on many of the residents and also on their families and their loved ones. It's interesting that the so-called looser restrictions, um, they go back to uh, you have to be tested negative, whereas if you meet with them outside, you, you, they drop that requirement. Right. They're limiting it to two people. Um, I, I, I have a little bit more comfort with that second thing, because if you're in a room and there's too many people, I imagine, in a confined space, I'm not quite sure, though. I come back to a comment I made a couple weeks ago. If you have to wear a mask, and if you have to observe social distancing, uh, I'm not sure how else you can transmit the uh, infection if you if you do test positive. And we did hear a lot of people, not a lot, but a meaningful number of people phone in and say it's hard for them to abide by the testing requirement to get there, to stand in line, etc. So there may be a little bit of controversy about that. I don't want to be the one to to uh, fan the flames on that, but it seems to me a reasonable time to do it, and we certainly welcome any uh, anything that makes it easier to visit people in these uh, long-term well, care homes. And it's not just visitors, however, because, of course, you know, that was, that was part of the first easing of restrictions, was allowing at least family members in there to see their loved ones, not in the homes, but to the homes to visit them. Now what they've done is they've allowed people to go inside, okay, but also they're allowing for family caregivers um, to be able to play the role that they once played previously, in which case um, physical distancing wouldn't necessarily be maintained because a lot of what family caregivers did was they supported them with with eating um, their meals. Maybe they supported them with helping to get changed in the morning and so on and so forth. So they played a number of different roles that was missing during the pandemic. And they've They've allowed for that to continue, provided these individuals, of course, uh, do get tested. Now, I do see some challenges with the test. I agree with David that it's not easy to go and get a test. And, of course, a test will only allow you to be able to access a, 
a, a long-term care home for a two-week period, at which point you need to get another test. Um, so it's definitely a hurdle for people to have to jump through. But in the name of keeping people safe, given how vulnerable these facilities are, I think it's fair. There's a real uh, element of humanity here, too, David, because, I mean, you would have to be masked to, to go in and visit. It's an inside public space. But to be able to give a haircut, to be able to shave a loved one, to, you know, to be able to yeah. brush the hair of a loved one, you know, massage the hands, do all those things that, you know, as human beings, we all crave and need. And, and these residents have really, they've been isolated and without that for so long. I think they're trying to walk a fine line. And uh, to your point, exactly, humanity and plus, plus the relationship. So they've been receiving this care from the loved one or the caregiver. And now it's gone away for, you know, higher reasons connected with the pandemic. Fair enough. But um, it isn't just the service of the haircut or the shave or whatever. I think it's those, those relationships that have been fractured and that are so necessary. We know already from uh, other evidence long before the pandemic that that personal contact uh, impacts your overall health. That oh, if you're yeah. lonely and isolated, uh, mm-hmm. your, your overall health goes down. And we've had a call, I think, from uh, that one uh, lady that's called in several times watching her Verna. husband deteriorate. Yes, yeah. Verna from watching, Oakville. <laughs> Verna, Verna, yeah, watching her husband deteriorate and notice, noticing the change. Around 80 to 90 percent of people living in long-term care homes have some form of cognitive impairment. And so I recall when my grandmother uh, was in one, um, what it meant to her to see my mother every day because she forgot who she was, but she could remember who my mom was, right? But she didn't know who the rest of the individuals around her were. And so for my mom to be there and be able to visit her, it would give her that sense of calm. It would calm her down if ever she was agitated. My mom was probably one of the only people that could actually do that. Mm -hmm. And through this pandemic, um, that's been lost. Um, And I also just want to mention, too, I mean, trimming someone's hair or or shaving their beard may sound trivial, but in fact, it's not because it's about their identity. It's about their humanity. It's about who they are. Um, And those things are so important to an individual living in long-term care. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media. You're listening to the best to fight back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. If you've been receiving the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, over the course of the pandemic, you'll likely have learned by now that it's taxable and that the government will be issuing a T4A slip for it. Will you have the money set aside to pay back the tax owed on CERB, which has been given out as a payment of 2000 a month? This is just one of the many concerns Canadians have had when it comes to managing money during covid Joining Jane Brown on Monday, Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Alan Small Financial Group, Hollis Wealth. Well, the CERB, as you've said, it is taxable. I think um, some individuals, at least at the beginning, uh, when they first started to receive it, uh, I don't think they knew this. You know, unlike most people, when you get, you know, your paycheck, you get taxes taken off right up front. With the CERB, you get the full amount of 2000 or 500 per week, 2000 per month. And then at the end of the year, you're going to have to settle up with the with the government. And I know there have been uh, some slight changes regarding taxation. I believe federally, anything less than forty eight five, if I'm not mistaken, you're looking at paying back about fifteen percent 
So if you're getting the full $8,000, you're looking at about $1,200 taxes that would have to be paid back. Uh, And then, of course, you have, depending on where you live across the country, what province you live, there are provincial uh, taxes as well here in Ontario. I believe uh, roughly another just over $400 will be paid. So about $1,600 of that $8,000 if you're receiving the full amount. I think Quebec is probably the highest province, I believe. And they're looking at paying an extra 1200 on top of the 1200 they would have to pay from a federal standpoint. So they're paying a little bit more than we are here in Ontario. So overall, there's definitely some management of, uh, I guess, the money that you're receiving. Some, I guess, some management is necessary, some budgeting to make sure that you have the funds to be able to pay it back if you are receiving uh, the, uh, the full amount. And of course, Keep in mind for, for some individuals, if this is the only money that you will be receiving, obviously the, uh, you're, for every individual, you're tax exempt up to roughly twelve, thirteen thousand. 13,000. So if the 8,000 is everything that you receive, right. then you actually will be fully exempt and won't have to pay any tax. So just depends. Everyone's situation is different. Is that why, Alan, that the government did not take tax off CERB to begin with? Because everyone's different? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think it makes sense for everybody to settle out come April. And we don't know, or I should say the government doesn't know everybody's tax situation. And of course, they wanted to get the money out as quickly as possible. And that's why over the past few months now, we've been hearing about a number of cases that have popped up where individuals have been getting SERB or other, uh, uh, I guess, government programs and receiving the money, and perhaps they should not have received the money. And so there has been, uh, I think, a lot of talk about these individuals giving back their CERB or paying back some of these uh, the monies that they've been receiving that they shouldn't have. So a lot has been going on over the past, oh, let's call it last couple of months. There are a lot of us who did not lose our jobs, who continue to be paid, who have not gone on vacations, who for a long time did not go out for restaurant meals and ended up, ironically, having a bit of a slush fund as a result and having a bit of a pandemic savings, so to speak. What is the safest way, the best way to invest this extra bit of money that some of us may have accumulated? Yeah, and it's interesting. We're seeing a lot of those types of individuals. Uh, I've talked to many saying, you know what? I actually have more money in my pocket now than, than three months ago, which is, which is <laughs> very ironic. So for those types of people, it really comes down to their risk tolerance, their investment time horizon, what they're comfortable investing in. But for many people that I've talked to, buying simple income-generating investments, whether it's dividend income or other types of income, that is seemed to be that, that seems to be the place people want to go to, whether it's owning a very simple investment in a bank, a Canadian bank, shares of TD Bank, for example, something like that, something that's going to pay you something, an income, while you wait for all this stuff to sort itself out. It seems to be the investment of choice for many. But keep in mind, these investments are volatile, can be volatile, so not for the faint of heart at times. And you just want to make sure whatever investments you choose, it's the right risk level for you. But there are a lot of things that are that have been cheap and are still cheap and that uh, investors are, are, are moving towards. And I think if you have some money to invest right now, it's a pretty good time to do so. Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Alan Small Financial Group, Hollis Wealth. To find out more, go to alansmall.com. 
You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. The Wee Charity controversy continues to garner headlines as the Ethics Commissioner probes the possibility that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Finance Minister Bill Morneau broke conflict of interest rules for the family connections to Wee. At the same time, members of a House Finance Committee are questioning the various players who were involved in coming to a decision to give a sole source contract to Wee Charity to run the Canada Student Service Grant Program. On Monday, many wondered why the Prime Minister would take a personal day on the first day the issue of his family connections would come up in question period. Filling in for Libby Snymer, Jane Brown asked this question of our Tuesday strategy panel. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of the Toronto Office of Earnscliffe Strategy Group, and Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. He was scheduled to take a personal day. He took a personal day. He is appearing in the House of Commons and will be there for question period today. I don't think there's a lot of strategy in it. Um, I will say uh, a couple things off the top about the We Charity situation. Um, the first is it's late July, so that will have something of a mitigating impact on uh, sort of the, the public's degree of concern and awareness of what's going on. Second, COVID is obviously rearing its ugly head uh, across the country in a way that is um, leaving a lot of folks very concerned. So that will also have uh, a dampening effect on the, the impact of the uh, the We Charity situation. That said, it's a wake-up call for the government. I mean, clearly things have not been handled well at all. Um, there are very serious questions to be asked and answered with regards to um, how this situation has unfolded. And, you know, in terms of the actual strategy of how to deal with a situation like this, job one is like rule number one, don't lie right? Get the information out there, warts and all, bring it all to light, preferably as quickly as possible, and um, and let the dust settle. And, you know, the government has not done a very good job of that, and so we'll see what the Prime Minister has to say in the House today. You know, sometimes the uh, maybe the view was, was Charles's view, is that it's July, no one's paying attention, I'm going to duck this one, it'll go away. I don't think this is going away. And I think that uh, it is July, but it's one of those odd summers where everybody's home and everybody's looking at the news because we're home looking at the news. And I, I, I don't think this is going to be the end of the government, uh, minority government by any stretch of the imagination. But if there was any lessons to be learned from, you know, day one of this debacle to, you know, day five of the debacle, that the lessons aren't getting learned and that the government needs to be more transparent and forthcoming. And it's, there is, a, I think, a general consensus that the pandemic is being handled well. But on a side note, there is a growing concern about the economy. And the idea that the government would hand out a billion dollars without any oversight is something that the government needs to take quite seriously. And um, taking a personal day, I don't think was the right thing to do. What do you think about that, John? It it felt strategic to me that maybe he wanted to see what they were going to throw at Christian Freeland so that he could prepare better for today. Or is that just or is it, as Charles suggested, it was already scheduled? Well, it's easy to unschedule a personal day, uh, given given the situation. And I think, you know, I, I would say that if there was a strategy to it, Jane, it was probably that strategy you just mentioned where 
they wanted to kind of see the kind of questions and, and maybe get the, the fewer of it out on, the, on day one and, and maybe hope that it dissipate, dissipates on day two today, um, but also have the prime minister a bit more prepared uh, going into going into question period, knowing that you know some of the hard questions or some of the tougher questions were asked yesterday, and that he might be in a better position to answer them today. But you know this is the kind of story that as a government you don't want to see uh, play out day in and day out. You want to sort of you, you want to you know it's going to get a couple of days ahead as it did, and you want to sort of see it kind of fall you know in the page four or five or six of of the papers. Um, for those who do still read the papers. Um, and, and, but, you know, so missing yesterday just allowed it to be another news story because the news story is, of course, the we issue and, and the controversy and the scandal around that, but also the fact that the prime minister did, it was a no show. So it allowed the media and the newspapers, um, and, and the pundits and others to be able, and the opposition more importantly, to be able to criticize him even further, to say, you know, he's ducking, he's weaving, he's, he's embarrassed, he doesn't know how to answer the questions. So notwithstanding the fact that he had a pre-scheduled personal day, which is fine, um, but, you know, it's easy to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to you know, punt my personal day to another day, and I'm going to go to the house, I'm going to take my lumps uh, and, and answer the questions as he should. This is a story that, you know, it, it's, the, it's, it's, it's a narrative that's building around this government. I think that that narrative is going to be what's going to probably hurt this government more than anything else. John Capobianco, Charles Byrd, and Karen Stintz, Fightback's strategy panel. This is the best of Fightback on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Black Lives Matter protesters here in Toronto say they're not seeing enough action to eliminate police violence against black people. And that frustration was evident last weekend when they claimed credit for defacing the statues of Canada's first prime minister, John A. Macdonald, King Edward VII, and Egerton Ryerson. The group said in a statement they artistically disrupted statues of slaveholders and monuments to colonialism at Ryerson University and Queen's Park. Then there were the issues around the arrests. Three people were arrested and then held for what protesters say was an unacceptable amount of time. Dr. Akwasi Owusu-Bemba is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and Dr. Wesley Critchlow is a professor of social science and humanities at Ontario Tech University. They're also both black men. The professor spoke with Jane Brown on Tuesday about the recent protest. This is a reflection of an, of, his, of a generational period of rage and rage that folks are expressed into what, what they consider to be colonial policing, a colonial society. And in essence, they're saying that um, every generation is going to fight for freedom differently, and there's no fixed definition of freedom or how every generation is going to define that. It's going to be done differently. And I think what Black Lives Matter uh, is saying to us is that, and reminding us once more is that, when black people lives matter, everybody else life will matter because how you treat black people will be dependent on how you treat other people. So I think it's in that context I would like to frame my conversation by saying that Black Lives Matter is is, is uh, drawing our attention to one of humanity and humanness of black bodies. Dr. Wusubempa, a lot of um, the complaints from the Black Lives Matter protesters and and those who feel solidarity with them is that there was an overreaction to this protest. Uh, And yet, I guess there's some discrepancy in thought around whether it was a peaceful protest when you're throwing paint all over public monuments. What are your thoughts on, on, on both of those aspects? 
difficult to, to, to pin down. From, from my perspective, you know, there were some comparisons made to paint being thrown on statues during um, Frost Week celebrations uh, around different campuses and university campuses and, and places in the city. And I think, you know, from my perspective, there are some distinctions between uh, actions taken like that in the context of uh, protest demonstration where police are present and tensions are high in the actions of students during Frost Week. And that's not to excuse what the students are doing and say that they're not also defacing proper property. But I think um, one might expect to be arrested when engaging in that type of behavior with the police present. Now, with that said, you know, we often see um, similar instances. We, we, you know, we see, you know, open drug use, for example, during demonstrations around cannabis legalization, prior to legalization, where there was clear flouting of the law and arrests were not made. Um, and, and in other instances, you know, individuals engage in action specifically to be arrested so that they can draw further attention to an issue. And this is, you know, that's a, a, a tried and tested way of, of drawing attention to a particular issue and trying to mobilize on that issue. And doc, But Dr. Critchlow, it's a different kind of feeling with the, the defacing of the statues than in the days after George Floyd's murder, when there were rallies and marches here in Toronto, like there were in other cities. It seemed like... Um, the angst has ramped up or it ramped up this past weekend. What is that a result of? I, I think it's, it's a result of uh, constructed hopelessness and generations of hopelessness that people are feeling. And they're enraged in a way that um, I think they're trying to express to the state that um, we need to see a more humane and just society, one in which I think uh, our humanity and freedom is, is, is not questioned. Um, I think there are ways in which also, too, that most most folks get, there's a negative stereotype associated with blackness. And so the mere fact that a black life demonstration is happening, I think there may be an overpresence and a heavy overpresence of police, both uh, uh, obvious in terms of clothing as of uniform and undercover, because of the dangerous stereotype of black lives are seen to, to, to possess. So I think in, in essence, there's also an issue here of over-policing the black community for minor, uh, for, for, for ways in which stereotypes brings that force stronger and under-policing to some degree when there's other issues in the black community. So I think, and a good example of that might be the West Hall example where he talks about what it means to be uh, a black man going to work and, and, and being stopped by the police. I think there's a, yes, people are just frustrated and they're fed up of this issue of what it means to be a black person in this city and to be over police. Dr. Wesley Critchlow, Professor of Social Science and Humanities at Ontario Tech University, and Dr. Akwasi Owusu-Bemba, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, and here are some of the best calls of the week. Barry called from Oshawa to comment on the statues that were defaced during a Black Lives Matter protest in Toronto. I looked at it, and um, the pink paint actually did a good job. It's very beautiful now. And I'm not saying that sarcastic. I said, wow, it looks nice. They did a great job of covering it. But more importantly, and on a positive um, note, I think that if they want it out of the picture, then they should re- uh, legally take it down by the, by the city and put it in a museum and replace it 
with a black leader that has done something for society. And we could start with William Peyton Hubbard, who led efforts to create the publicly owned Toronto hydroelectric system. And I believe in 1894, he was in Ward 4. He ran for public office and he he, uh, was successful. Skip from Toronto phoned to make a suggestion for store owners requiring customers to wear masks. If you say you must come in the store with a mask, then the store should have masks to sell people and said, pay a dollar, pay whatever for the mask and go in. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who weighed in on not traveling at this time. I don't foresee any travel plans as yet. I think it's too early. Uh, I, I'm fearful of circumstances on the road where I don't have the kind of control I have when I'm at home. And with respect to flying, uh, for myself and those I know who love to travel, I, they don't see getting on an airplane uh, anytime in the new fu- future, if at all going into the future, for two reasons. One is the COVID and the safety, but the whole airport experience uh, for seniors is now so overwhelming that uh, it, it, it just doesn't seem worth it. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby, and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Compson. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.